Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Today is World Food Day. We should all, let's without getting too uh, sappy here or anything else, but we should all be counting our blessings that we actually have food and can talk about it because there are a lot of people in the world who don't. So keep that in mind as we talk. We're not going to talk about the food specifically, but it is something to be mindful of. But let us switch to another issue that revolves or spins out of food, if we can, for a moment. Because when you go to the store to buy food, whether it's a restaurant, whether it's a grocery store, whether it's a convenience store, whatever else, you're not just buying food. You are also buying packaging, a lot of packaging. Now, I am guilty of using a Keurig coffee machine in the morning. Love that. Just throw the cup under there and it makes one cup. I don't need a whole pot. But have you seen how much packaging there is in one cup, one of those little pod cups? You ever taken one of those things apart and seen there's a little bit of coffee grounds and then plastic, plastic, plastic with a little more plastic? I mean, it's a ton of packaging for a little tiny thing. You go to the grocery store now, certain grocery stores, certain upscale grocery stores, we're even packaging our fresh produce in wrapped packaging sometimes now. Now, we need, obviously, some of our food, most of our food to be packaged in something, but do we really need all of this? Well, I want to bring in a good friend of this show. He's been here many times. We love having him on. His name is Dr. Sylvain Charlebois. He's a professor in food distribution and policy, uh, faculties of management and agriculture at Dalhousie University. Uh, thanks for doing this, Dr. Charlebois. Appreciate it. No problem. You wrote today, and I was reading what you put out today, uh, you wrote today that most of the plastic trash that is cleaned up along Canadian shorelines this fall can be traced to five companies, and they are all in the food industry. Yeah, absolutely. So Greenpeace, first of all, I should uh, note that uh, World Food Day is actually tomorrow. Tomorrow. Well, we're going to jump on it then. Be it's thankful always, tomorrow then, too. Yeah, it's always October 16th, every single year. So uh, so it's tomorrow, but uh, tomorrow's theme uh, is food waste. And, and that's why I wrote my column about about food packaging, because a lot of waste is generated by, by, by food packaging in general. And Greenpeace actually published this uh, report last week, uh, went around the world, uh, collected garbage uh, on beaches, waterways, and uh, they actually realized that five companies were responsible for the majority of the garbage they collected, and that would be McDonald's. I suspect that some of your listeners would be able to to, uh, to guess to guess them. <laughs> yeah. So McDonald's, uh, um, uh, PepsiCo, Coca-Cola, Nestle, and in Canada, Tim Hortons actually was uh, was on that list. And we're not talking, by the way, about a little bit of garbage here. We're talking about a lot of stuff that is being used up. Actually, yes. Uh, so uh, millions of metric tons that are collected. Uh, and, and this issue is really uh, catching fire. It's attracting a lot of uh, people's attention all around the world. In fact, I was just uh, in Australia a couple of weeks ago, and they they made this gigantic statue, 30, 30 foot high a statue uh, that looks like a monster, but it was all made from plastic they collected on the beach in the past year uh, in Sydney, Australia. So you see more and more citizens, more and more people 
uh, are becoming more conscious about this humongous problem uh, that is generated by our food packaging practices. And yet we know it's a problem. I think what you wrote today, while it's great and people will be able to read it online or wherever, but I think that we acknowledge it's a problem, we know it's a problem, and yet we continue to buy stuff that is heavily packaged. All I can tell from this, but the only conclusion I can draw is that we are such suckers that if you package something nicely, no matter what it is, we'll buy it. And the companies know this through their marketing and through everything else. And so they keep packaging it. Exactly. And, and of course, it's not really uh, the company's fault entirely. I mean, we have to keep in mind that we're kind of asking for for this solution. Uh, so food safety certainly is a concern for, for many of us. We want our food clean. So mm-hmm. every time we buy something, it's protected by this uh, plastic membrane. And of course, when you show up at the counter at the cashier, if you actually buy fish or fresh meat, uh, they'll actually make sure it's, uh, it's put into another plastic bag to make sure it doesn't leak and contaminate other products you're buying. And so there, plastics uh, have, have played a very important role in keeping our food safe, and that's something we need to keep in mind. I have long argued, though, that uh, let's take a product, I don't know, Raisin Bran, just as a wild example. If you were to have two 10-cup packages and one of them was to be put into the purple Raisin Bran box with the nice lettering and the graphics and logos and everything else, and the exact same amount was to be put into a brown paper bag with Raisin Bran written on it and run together or tied together with a twist tie, 10 times out of 10 customers would go to the purple box. Oh, absolutely. Without a doubt, collars sell. Uh, I mean, looks sell, uh, diagrams. Uh, it's really, it's about marketing. It's about sales. And of course, as soon as you start start to talk about packaging, companies are concerned. And so, uh, obviously, there's there's the food safety aspect. There's the marketing aspect. Um, and also, of course, logistics play a huge role. Uh, don't forget, a lot of our food travel travel miles and miles and and sometimes uh, cold chains uh, or uh, chains supply chains in general temperatures fluctuate uh, a lot so if you have uh, a membrane that doesn't resist well to uh, fluctuating temperatures uh, you're compromising the integrity of the food there so and and that's a that's an issue we are seeing a a I don't know if it's a cultural shift but a, a taste not well a taste shift we're seeing more and more people buying pre-made restaurant food or pre-made food from stores or whatever that's got to come with packaging so now we're not even just doing it at home and cooking and having a little grocery garbage we're having even more leftover stuff yeah we, we don't realize it but our pursuit for convenience is actually generating more trash we're, we're walking around, we're actually in transit uh, as we eat food more often than ever. 35% of our food budget is spent outside the grocery store, and so you either uh, go and eat in a restaurant, but a lot of people actually um, take the grab-and-go uh, uh, products, and uh, either at a grocery store or in a uh, in a uh, restaurant and so in order to make sure that your product is safe and fresh 
cash. Well, they offer you packaging, and that packaging, uh, most of the time, uh, thank goodness, uh, ends up in uh, in the garbage. Uh, but uh, a lot of the time, because of wind and let's be honest, negligence, uh, a lot of it uh, actually ends up uh, in the environment. So what that's is what we're seeing? So what is the answer? Because I mean, we can't, we can't. I don't think we want to. You alluded to it a moment ago. I don't think we want to adopt the non-standards for food preparation that you will see in some parts of the world, that would certainly lead to less garbage, but it would also probably lead to a lot more illness. So what is the answer to this? So in the last year, it's been refreshing because there's been more discussion around the single-use single plastics, which is actually... Uh, it's different. I mean, uh, uh, five years ago, plastics weren't necessarily part of anybody's conversation. Now it is. So you're dealing with a highly politicized issue, and as soon as an issue becomes very politicized, well, industry will move. And that's what's going on right now. There's been lots of research in the area of compostable packaging. Uh, we've seen, you know, our, our fair share of failures in the past. You may have remember the Sun Chips bag. Do you remember that? Vaguely. It was, it was very quick on the market, right? Oh, yeah. It was about a year. So PepsiCo came out with a compostable um, bag of chips uh, for their Sun Chips uh, back in uh, 2010, so eight years ago. And it was unbelievably noisy. I, I could ask your listeners to look it up on YouTube. Uh, you'll see videos of people uh, who can't hear their television set because the sound was just horrific. They pulled it out of the market because, well, for that reason, the other reason, it wasn't breaking down in 14 weeks for compost. So that was a problem. But since then, it's been better. But what really is attracting a whole lot of attention in the last uh, few months are edible food packaging solutions. Yes, edible. I watched a video. It's funny you mentioned this. I watched a video not long ago of an edible water ball. And instead of a yeah. water bottle, it was yeah. it was somehow a ball. And I don't even know what the packaging was, but you would literally pop this. It was the size of like a golf ball. Yeah. You would pop it into your mouth, and the whatever was holding the ball in place just dissolved in your mouth. Yep. And it was gone. And people, I was watching people look and like the look on their face was stunned because they they couldn't imagine. But that would seem to be exactly what you're talking about. And, and they seem to think like everyone who tried it in that video looked amazed that this would actually work. Yeah, no, absolutely. So uh, the, the, for, for the first generation of of edible packaging solutions uh, were, most of them were starch-based. The problem with starch-based uh, packaging is that it doesn't contain freshness for a very long period of time. And it's not necessarily, it's a little bit more porous, so that was problematic. So you couldn't hold, you couldn't hold water or anything else. But now with technology, with research, we've been able to develop new uh, fabrics. Uh, and some of it is actually uh, based, it, it, it uses dairy proteins. We've been talking a lot about milk these days and what we would do with the excess of milk we have in this country or in the U.S. Well, actually, you can actually make edible food packaging with it. And the USDA actually has come up with a solution and get this you could actually infuse that product that packaging with nutrients vitamins and probiotics 
and actually alter the taste. So, because you want you want to build a case for consumers to eat that plastic. <laughs> you just can't. You just don't want to eat your garbage. You want you want it to taste good, and you want it to be good for you. Well, and I mean, look, millennials. We know a, a very high on their list of important things is the environment. And so you would think that if a company could come up with a product that would actually do the job properly, whoever came up with that idea is going to make a lot of money. Oh, absolutely. So the USDA believes that within a year they'll be able to commercialize the product. But once the business model is developed, I suspect that it may be a little bit on the expensive side. And that's really what the problem, the fundamental problem is. If we want a sustainable packaging solutions at retail, and I think most of us want to, I think we're going to have to pay for it. Well, like everything else, right? It's going to cost us more. We may get what we want, but it's going to cost us more. Uh, It's a fascinating piece. I'm sure you'll be reading it somewhere soon. It's by Dr. Sylvain Charlebois from Dalhousie University. Always love having you on. Thank you for taking the time today. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. It's a really interesting topic, though. And go watch, if you can look it up, go watch this video. I don't even know what you would look it up with. It was an edible water bottle. And it was a little round ball of water and you just pop it in your mouth and whatever it was that held it in place just dissolved. And the look on people's faces when they had this and it was, there was suddenly nothing there. You go, you know, if, if this could work, that would be very, very cool. And a lot less garbage. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. This mysterious non-bottled water capsule that you can just pop in your mouth. What It was made of what? It, uh, which is known as the Uho, is made of brown algae. Okay, wait a sec. Stop for one second. Uho does not have a name that makes you want to put it in your mouth. I'm sorry. No. I, Uho does not sound appetizing. Why not just like wet ball? I am wet. I'm not sure if wet ball is appetizing. Maybe, either. Uh, you're probably right. But uh, who knows? Maybe that's what Uho uh, translates from. Maybe it's another uh, language. But anyways, it's made of seaweed and uh, brown algae. But it's completely transparent. Like yes. when you look at it, it looks like yes. a giant water drop. <laughs> it's, it's not no... a squishy brown ball of algae. Uh, yeah, see, that, see, that would just be gross. <laughs> would you like to have some Uho and someone hand... Yeah, no, I, uh, it looks just like a, like a bubble of water. Yeah, it does. And the other alternative just was too disgusting to c- contemplate putting in your mouth. <laughs> Uh, anyway, there you go. You can look that one up. How do you spell Uho? O-O-H-O. Uho. There, okay. By the way, Will is uh, in tonight. Will is pressing all the buttons, playing all the music, uh, working very diligently to come up with all music to do with joints and cannabis. You know, it's amazing how few songs there really are where they come right out and say that they're all about the... Mm-hmm. The, yeah. You know. yeah. Yeah, no, a lot of it gets covered up. Let me ask you this question, because um, we may have talked about this before. Can you think back to a time when you did something that, in retrospect, you said, I should have thought that through? (laughs) Uh, Before I actually embarked upon that activity, I really should have given it some sober second thought. Can you think of an example? I can think of many. Are you allowed to share one example? I am allowed to share some of these. All right, give me one. Do you want stupid young Will or stupid teenage Will? Just any time when at the moment that something went wrong, you said, 
I should have thought that through a little better. Uh, yeah, there's a really good toboggan hill uh, just a little uh, bit off of, from Dundas here. And it's got a real nice, uh, nice slope. And then a little bit off to the side, it's got a really dangerous-looking slope uh, that you shouldn't go down. And I picked that one, and it flung me about uh, seven feet off the ground uh, when I hit an ice patch with a large lump. And uh, I was incapacitated while my friends laughed. Nice. Nice. Very nice. Yeah, so, see, we all have these stories. Yeah, the thought came to me while airborne. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. It's amazing how in, in that split <laughs> second you actually have time. When people say their life flashes before their eyes at the moment of death, and you say, how could your whole life flash before your eyes? Well, it's true. We all have these stories where you will do something, and in the midst of doing it, you're thinking to yourself, this was really not well thought out. <laughs> This was really something I should have given a little more consideration to before I said, yes, I am going to do this kind of thing. And whether it's something, if you have a, you know, some sort of minor, hopefully criminal past where you and your (laughs) friends decided to do something that was just over the borderline of being illegal and you got caught and now you're wearing that one forever, right? Or whether it was... Whatever. I mean, I have so many that I don't even know which one to offer up or ones to offer as an, as an example. I, I mean, my, my, my childhood was one of these after another. <laughs> my whole storyline as a kid was this. But anyway, I raised this all because of a story that came uh, from Spain on the weekend. There's a guy who is the WC, WBC heavyweight champion right now. He's a boxer. Deontay Wilder. Now, if you're a heavyweight boxing champion, uh, there's two things or three things that you can say with some certainty about you. All right. One of them is you're in these days. Anyway, you're going to be a big man. Back in the day when there was a time when being a heavyweight champion, you could be like 195 pounds. Not anymore. You're going to be pushing 230 minimum now to be the heavyweight champion. You're going to be a big dude. And unless you have a granite jaw... The other thing we can say with some certainty about you is you're going to be able to throw a punch, right? If you're that big, you're going to be able to deliver a punch. Well, why are we mentioning all this about Deontay Wilder? Because he went on a TV show in Spain and somebody on the show, the host of the show, decided it would be a really good idea for him to demonstrate his punching power. But not against the host of the show. Now, he didn't want to volunteer himself. He pointed over to the other half of the set, and there was a mascot standing there wearing some sort of outfit with a sombrero and a mustache but and arms and legs sticking out of it. But that is it. And he says, go demonstrate. And so somehow the guy in the mascot, see, if I'm the guy, I'm not upset necessarily at the fighter. I'm not upset at Wilder. I'm not upset even at the host. But if I'm the guy who's in the mascot outfit and the host has said, see that thing over there? Go punch it as hard as you can. If I'm in that mascot outfit, I'm saying, see ya, I'm out of here. No, he stuck around. Oh. And Deontay Wilder, who is on TV, so he doesn't want to look bad, and is not really thinking that this mascot is looking very human-like, apparently delivered a full-on WBC heavyweight championship worthy uppercut to this mascot. Uh, knocked the poor mascot and the person inside right off his feet and broke the guy's jaw. Oh, oh no. And he says he feels bad and he's going to give the guy tickets to his next fight, <laughs> which he'll be cheering with like his jaw wired shut, I'm sure. But <laughs> if you're the guy in the outfit, do you not say to yourself, this is not 
going to go well. <laughs> I've got the world heavyweight boxing champion about to slug me. What are the best possible outcomes that I could have? He hits me in the face and knocks me out and breaks my head. He hits me in the ribs and breaks my rib and I can't breathe for six weeks. He delivers a low blow and I never have children and I sing in the Vienna Boys Choir for the rest of my life. There's no good outcome to this and yet he stands there and takes it. Maybe he was angling for those free tickets. It worked. <laughs> it worked. He got the free tickets. Was it worth it? I don't know. I can't hold my mouth to talk anymore. I'll tell you later. Yeah, don't even, do that. Can't if, even drink bald water now. If you, yeah, if you ever have a world heavyweight boxing champion offer to slug you in the face and you're not being paid 20 or $30 million in the ring as part of the fight, as a rule, say no. Just a little piece of friendly advice from the Scott Radley Show. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in Don Robertson of the Dundas Real McCoys of ComChoice Realty of various other Dundas enterprises, election campaigns, <laughs> whatever. He does everything. Comes in every Monday at this time. Thank you for coming in, sir. Appreciate it. Looking, Glad to be here. Looking very sharp today. You must have been working. I came straight from work and then straight to hockey tonight. Oh, it's already started. Uh, practice, yep. Up at Harry Howell Arena. When are you, when's your first game? This Saturday. So some of our guys will get at least one skate in before we go to Whitby. That'll be fun. We will uh, get to that before the show is over. I don't know if you saw the uh, the replay from either last night or Saturday night in the Florida Panthers-Vancouver Canucks game. And a guy from the Florida Panthers whose name is Michael Matheson goes behind the net and body checks a guy named Elias Peterson, who's a real good player, young player for the Vancouver Canucks, uh, hits him against the boards up until the hit, perfectly legal play in my mind, and then as he finishes gives him a little bit of a shove down to the ice. And uh, Body slam. Well... See, here's this is the interesting part to me, is if you go watch the video, it, he does push him down to the ice for sure. Peterson weighs about 140 pounds, and he got two-game suspension for this today. I'm, I don't want, there's a whole bunch of things I want to get to on this one, but before we jump into some of them, I'm still very confused by the NHL's player safety slash discipline department, that this where you hit a guy legally and then basically shove him to the ground forcefully. I'm not going to say he gently laid him down on the ice. I mean, he threw him to the ground. Gets two games, but Max Domi punches a guy in the face who doesn't want to fight and gets zero meaningful games as a suspension. I, I, I don't think they have any clue what they're doing in the d- discipline department. Well, that argument's fairly new 20 years ago. What, that they don't know what they're doing? Yeah. But you'd think that There's you're right. There's not a lot of consistency. You know, it depends. Peterson is, uh, that's the kid who got... Um, He's a good young player. He's had a good start for the Canucks down. and got thrown down, yep. So he is their Austin Matthews, if you will, for Leaf fans. Yep. And the NHL, as they should, have to protect their marquee players. I think it has a lot more to do with who got pushed down. And the result, he, he was concussed because of it. But the guy that Domi, I'm trying to think of his name, I, I'm drawing a blank on the, uh, the yeah, guy me too. You got uh, Domi. That, that Domi punched, has had concussion issues, and is their version 
of Austin Matthews because he's their best player. Well, they 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 screwed up on Domi. He should have got a game or two of the regular season. To the, just suspend him during the exhibition is doesn't cost him any money. The problem they always have, Don, is it seems that the penalty is always determined by the injury as opposed to by the action. Right? Domi's, Domi's punch could very well have ended that guy's season with another concussion. And had it done that, is it zero games? I would like to think not. No, it's not. But it wasn't anything to do with Domi's good judgment or Domi's good aim or anything else that prevented that guy from being hurt. It was luck. And in this case, you, you throw a 140-pound guy to the ice, and it, you get bad luck, and now you get suspended for it. it, it nothing they seem to do. They got the one right. The one that was um, the five-gamer or whatever it was the other day, and I'm trying to think who that was, was, was I thought it was right. Yep, that, that was a fair one. Um, and the repeat offender from Washington who just signed the big contract. Tom Wilson. Got 20 games. That was the one I was thinking was, was he should have got that. Yeah. So if Domi hits um, and does that to Sidney Crosby, he gets five games. Which, again, makes no sense to me. Makes no sense to me. Well, it, They're consistent about it, though. If you do that to a superstar, the penalty is more important than if you do it to a fourth-line player. The the argument that has always puzzled me is how the Players Association seemingly go along with it. They don't treat them all their players as equals. And they don't stick up for them equally. The other thing... Well, they I, never defend the guy who's the victim. No, and yeah, I was going to say, the other thing I always find interesting is that if a guy... If, if Domi lays out Sidney Crosby and knocks him out and concusses him, he doesn't get five. He might get 10 or 15. And you'll see the Players Association come and appeal it. Well, he just dummied, which which Domi didn't do, obviously. But hypothetically, if any player does that to a premier player in the league, the NHLPA come and defend the guy that's suspended. What about the poor guy that got laid out? Mm-hmm. Aaron I mean, Ek- is he not a member of the association? Aaron Ekblad, by the way, is the guy, the defenseman for Florida, who is their best player. They're the guy that they can least afford to lose that Domi punched in the face, and he's got a history of concussions. And again, like it, it, that punch, to me, if you decide to do that, you should get the same penalty regardless of the outcome. If you drill a guy from behind into the boards head first into the board so he goes flying head first in there and he happens to get up you should get the same penalty as if he's down there and ends up with a broken neck what, because it, because the outcome has nothing to do with you you've only caused the action your responsibility ends when you have finished the action of that play and and I just don't understand what they're but doing but it's not going to change and it's a double standard the other thing that's double standard and this is the other part I wanted to raise about this is if you go on Twitter, if you go on social media, if you go and watch or listen to any Vancouver radio today, I tuned in for a few minutes online to listen to Vancouver sports radio. Of course, the people in Vancouver who have rarely been accused of being sensible or or level-headed about anything. They, I mean, they are the m- m- most, I don't even know what the right word is, um, irrational fan base perhaps in hockey. They're going nuts about this. They're going completely bonkers that the the guy who did this, that Matheson, should be getting a long suspension, and it was the most brutal thing they've ever seen, and blah, blah, blah. 
And I'm thinking, wait a second, this is the exact same fan base not all that long ago that was arguing that what Todd Bertuzzi did to Steve Moore wasn't all that bad and shouldn't really get any kind of significant penalty. Well, that was bad. It always it goes back to me with the same thing as when Barry Bonds was doing whatever Barry Bonds was doing with substances. In San Francisco, Barry Bonds was a hero. Everywhere else, they were saying, no, he's not a hero. He's a villain. Why is it? And maybe this is just the beauty, in air quotes, the beauty of sports that we can cheer blindly for our guy or guys or women, but... Why is it that when when you cheer for a team, you become oblivious to irony, oblivious to bad behavior? Uh, as long as it's your guy, doesn't matter what he does, we're 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 on his side. That that's always puzzled me a little bit. Well, it's um, um, love is blind. I guess if you love your team, you're going to sit with them and stick with them forever. But it's it's the nature of the game. It's the passion of the sport. Um, my guy can do no wrong. I don't think that escapes the upbringing of children. Um, when your kid gets caught in a situation with a gang of guys or girls that did something inappropriate and saying, it was just the wrong place at the wrong time because my kid wouldn't do that. So they justify it. You've seen it in sports. You've seen it at school. You've heard the rumors. It's just part of life. It doesn't make it right, but it makes it interesting. I... I it was the first thing that dawned on me today was going back to those days when when it was the whole Todd Bertuzzi thing. And there was such a vigorous defense of what he did because Moore had hit our best player. If you remember back in the situation, it was Moore that had delivered a, a hit that was some said was questionable. And so the code said that someone yeah. had to take to do something. And it was completely acceptable. Not only acceptable, it was wildly enthusiastically encouraged. And any suggestion that Todd Bertuzzi was being a thug or was being a criminal almost or whatever else was just out of line. It was completely out of line. Many thought he delivered what Moore deserved. Street justice. Yep. And that same fan base in many cases. For In many cases, I would guarantee you the same people turn around and and we've seen this with other teams we've seen this with every team I, I mean I would argue every team has done this that there's been a guy on their team when Ty Domi speaking of the Domi family uh, slugged Ulf Samuelson in the face that one time and dropped him in front of the net and people are like oh, Ulf Samuelson was a dirty player he deserved it well n- no I mean yeah he may have deserved something but that's not within the rules of the game, and we can't just say that we're willing to overlook that because it's our guy. But we do. Well, the interesting turnaround on that is if somebody had done that to Ty Domi and saying he deserved it, the Toronto fans would have been in an uproar. Of course. Because they didn't stand toe-to-toe and take him on like a man, right? So it's all it's all for love of the game and love of the uh, team, and that overrides everything else. <clears throat> yeah, I, I, it's it, called the passion that unites us. I think they say that's what the Leafs use. Yeah, absolutely, they use. You it, know, you talk about kids being in trouble and saying that's not my little boy. Well, in Linden, where I grew up, which was I'm 104 now, but traditionally there was always an outhouse burnt 
to the ground because we weren't using them much in the small town anymore, but there always seemed to be one that got dragged in front of the church and burned up. And I was 14 or 15, and my dad told me the night before Devil's Night, if you're even on the street at the other end of the village that night, you are in more trouble than you've ever been in your entire life. So I was guilty if I was even out the door. So things have changed a lot as far as fans and parents protecting their kids. I mean, I was basically threatened with my life if I was today, even outside. Today, if you dragged an outhouse to the front of a church or any other house of worship and lit it on fire, there'd be investigations as a hate crime because they wouldn't, you wouldn't know what the no, meaning of it was. No, it wasn't in front of the church, but it was one of the biggest intersections in town, so it was on the road in front of the church as a statement. And there were, there were more outhouses at that end of the village, so it made it easier. You could probably smell it for about six days afterwards. Smell what? The the burning wood? The burn well, and whatever else was uh, sloshing around that you dragged out of there. You don't know much about outhouses. Well, it, I fall, it falls right through. Yeah, it's. Well, I understand that part, but you know, there's. <laughs> I get your point. There'll be remnants. Remnants. That's a good word for it. Yes, remnants. Well toasted remnants. <laughs> It, it is a it is a baffler to me. It is it, uh, I understand the passion, but I've never understood how it is that when it's your guy, yeah. that all is excused immediately, and nothing that anyone says can change that. It is okay. The league uses it as a double standard, and there's no common sense involved in the fans and the team that gets suspended, ever. No, and you know, Don, I don't know that there is a way that the player safety, player discipline, I don't know that there's a way for this department to do it in a way that satisfies people at all. All I know is that it seems as though the range of things and the explanation of things is so wide and there's so little consistency that I think you could do it to make a few more people happy. Right now, it's just, and this is not just this is not just in hockey either. This is not just this is in a lot of sports that the range of penalties is just too wide and not easily followable. And well, who's upset with the two game suspension today? Everybody in Vancouver. Okay, so what? I'm just telling you, and no, and I bet you Vancouver's that Vancouver's not that big a place. And I bet you that everybody in who's a fan in Florida, all twelve of them, um, but. Look, if, no so matter, they're mad too. No matter which side you're on, <clears throat> you're going to be mad. Now, I mean, they're just showing on the TV in the studio right now. They're just showing another play with a very, very, very similar situation, and that one didn't get a suspension at all. No because, injury, no, no premium Because the player. guy, he was helped off, but he came back on later in that game, and he was fine. And so you say, wait a second, this is, this is what I'm talking about. It's based way too much on the outcome as opposed to the action. Well, there's always been a hue and cry, and a lot of people believe, I'm not one of them, that in actual fact, the penalty should mirror the length of time the the injured player's out. The problem with that, and I've heard that, everyone's heard that a million times. That's a dumb idea. Well, it's because now you hit Sidney Crosby. Or sorry, Sidney Crosby hits you. That's right. You're going to milk that thing for your... Suddenly, you're going to be out for seven weeks. Yeah, the trainer's not letting you come back, and the guy's going, I can go next shift. No, you can't. No, you're done. You're done for the year. That's you, right. you, you know, I mean, it, it does We're going to pay you your $650,000 because you're a really good fourth-line team guy. No, there is... 
I'll tell you what the solution to this is, which will never happen in a million years, but I'll tell you what the solution to this is. First of all, the problem the, there's a couple problems the NHL and other sports have, and that is when a guy is suspended, he is suspended for the next however many games the suspension goes for. Well, it's very rare that those games are against the team that suffered the injury or suffer or was victimized by this, right? In this particular case, Vancouver versus Florida. If you believe there should be a suspension, Vancouver's missing their best player. The next games are not against Florida, who's now missing one of their good players. So it's other teams that are benefiting when they play against Florida. Been the argument, right? So first of all, any suspension in any sport should be if it's three games, it should be the next three games against the aggrieved team. So if Florida has, if a guy has a two-game, if Matheson has a two-game suspension, his two games should be the next two times Florida plays against Vancouver. Well, the difficulty with that is, and it's, it, 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 I mean, there's some logic and common sense to that until you, uh, Toronto and Dallas both have a suspension. The suspension could take three years to serve. So? So? So what happens if a guy from uh, Toronto um, does that to a player in Dallas, as I just mentioned? And they don't play him again this year, so he doesn't serve anything this year. And next year he gets traded before they play Dallas. So the team that's picking him up... The team that picks him up knows that he's got those games against Dallas that he's missing. Okay. It's just part of the trade. It's like trading for a guy if you've, with a bonus or with something else that you're picking up that comes yep. with his contract. That's part of what you're uh, you're getting. And so is that really helping uh, um, Toronto? It, well, it, it will be helping or, the... No, but it's not about helping Toronto. It's about helping the team that was victimized by the play. The aggrieved that, team. The aggrieved team. It's about helping them. And so if that guy, that he does not get to play... And I'll tell you something else that does if you do that. If you're the NHL and you're smart enough to do that it probably cuts out a lot of the crap that goes on in those follow-up games when the whole when the aggrieved team now wants to kill the guy who did it. But that's almost gone now. Largely, but they're still out there. You'll still see guys do stuff. You take that away now. It's not like the good old days when there was a fight before the puck dropped. There's one other way you do this. You rate every player. You, you can rate every player based on his points or based on something else. And if, let's say, that Don Robertson got a suspension... And Don Robertson was a B minus player or a player in this. You can choose which of their players doesn't get to play that game, who falls into the same category. <laughs> if my guy is out, I get to choose which of your players. So if it's an A player, if you take out Sidney Crosby with a headshot, next time you play, I'm sorry, we're choosing that Austin Matthews will not be playing for your team. That's how you, there's another way you balance it out. But none of these are going to get done. They'll just continue on with the... Well, they might if they're listening. No, they won't be. Because why would they? As you say, this has been going on for decades now, and it's never been fixed. It's never been fixed. And we've got to go to break, but I'll tell you why one of the reasons I believe it's never been fixed is because they've always just brought in former tough guys to be the head of the discipline or player safety thing. As opposed to, why not bring someone in who's got nothing to do with the game, who can look at it as an objective observer, a judge, bring in a retired judge and say, you tell us what the suspension is, as opposed to George Peros or Brian Burke or Coley Campbell, any of these guys who played that particular way. They're always going to side with the guy who's the guilty person. That's who they were. That's the type of player they were. Well, Wilson just got 20 games, so... As his, what, sixth suspension in the yeah. span, third in the span of five months or something. Yeah. So, I mean, there's... There, yeah, Including there's gonna the be, summer. There's going to be 
outliers and exceptions where it's too obvious. What If they'd given five games, the rest of the league would have lost their mind. Yes. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I know you guys don't do this to the Dundas Real McCoys when you're doing your games, and I don't hear this a lot of other places, but I was at the McMaster football game on the weekend. They're playing in Waterloo. And the PA announcer in Waterloo for the university fancied himself something of a comedian. And so rather than simply announce incomplete pass for McMaster, he would say, and a horribly incomplete pass for McMaster, and then play some music about how horrible the incomplete pass was. or And it's first and Dundas for McMaster and all the rest, which of course was... McMaster was losing, and it generally got many of the McMaster fans riled up and not happy with this guy. If you're at a game, is it totally kosher, totally cool for the home arena, stadium, whatever announcer to do and say whatever they want to try and get the home fans going, or is there a level of... What's the word I'm looking for? Sobriety, not in terms of alcohol, but in terms of thought that you should be following and just say, look, just you're the PA announcer. Just call the game. Uh, you know how you mentioned earlier that everybody in Vancouver was mad about the suspension because it wasn't a thousand games or whatever they felt yep. it should have been. It would be the same way with the home fans finding humor in it at the expense of the opponent. So they would find it mostly acceptable. Mac fans, not on this day, but if Mac fans were winning 26 to 1, they would probably find some humor in it. But when you're getting your butt handed to you and things aren't going well, I'm sure it's far less funny than it ever was. I don't think there's a whole lot wrong with the PA announcer in any sport finding some humor in it. There was a guy in Caledonia when they had an intermediate team when I was refereeing. I was refereeing. I was 21. I was probably the youngest guy in the ice. And uh, he said, would everyone please stand for the playing of the, or the singing of the national anthem by Jimmy Fiddler and the Little Brown Jug Band? Now, there was nobody there. So I'm, I, I start laughing and think, well, this guy's got a sense of humor. Till I give out the third penalty in a row to Caledonia for elbowing. And he announces that uh, number 16, Radley, who the referee apparently thought elbowed someone. <laughs> now, I found that a little less funny, than, but he was very entertaining. And I didn't, I said something to him at the end of the first period. He said, are you done? He said, are you? I went, well, I'm going to carry on the way I am. He said, then me too. So he was really funny. Well, there was, there was four or 500 people there that took great glee in it that he was making fun of the referee. But he did it the same way when I when I called, the, well, same guy in the second period called two in a row against Smithville, and he says, finally, two in a row against the other guys. So it was, he was really good. I didn't take offense to it because I really didn't care. But I watched a replay the other day or a video clip. There's a, there's a, a baseball umpire, Angel Hernandez, who is uh, very poorly thought of by nearly everybody in <laughs> baseball. The managers hate him. The players hate him. The fans hate him. He is just the guy that everybody in baseball, and he's the guy who sued Major League Baseball saying he didn't get a, a promotion. And everybody involved in the game is saying, there's a darn good reason why you haven't had a promotion. Anyway, 
uh, he was doing a game at home plate at Wrigley Field some time ago. And you know how they have celebrities ever since Harry Carey died. They have celebrities do the seventh yeah. inning stretch and sing, take me out to the ball game. And I can't remember who it was who was singing. But after he was done and the whole crowd was singing, he goes, and now I'm going to go down and have a few words with that idiot blind umpire. <laughs> and the video shows Hernandez turn around and stare at the guy and toss him out of the park. And it's like, I, you know, I don't know. I, on the one hand, you say you can't bring disrepute to the umpire. On the other hand, you would like to think that he would just have a chuckle about it. But, you know, I, I don't know the answer to this one. I think there's a, I think there is a, I don't have any problem, for example, with a PA announcer in a football game, let's say. Saying, let's have some noise for our defense. Yep. Right. If you're gonna, if you're gonna rile up the home crowd in a positive way about your team. Well, that's different. I have no problem with that whatsoever. I don't think you need to simply be a fact-stating fact first and 10 on the 15-yard line, right? You don't need to be, uh, and, and, um, what was his name, Bob uh, Morris. Uh, Paul Morris. Paul Morris. Toronto goal, scored <clears throat> by number 21, Boria Salming. Assessed by number, anyway, I won't do any more. I uh, had him on the show one time. Very interesting guy. Great voice. Uh, well, the most unique and but it was cool. synonymous it was voice Maple ever. Yep. Maple Leaf Gardens. I don't think you need to be that today, but I do wonder about whether you should be part of the show. Well, they but they do it, but they do it when the home team scores. But again, that to me is being just sort of part of the. You're, that's cheering for the home team, and I got no issue with <clears throat> that. It's more the idea of mocking the opposing team that I'm, I question, that I well, question. But if you're going to... And if you're going to do it, you better be ready for the blowback. That's the only other thing. But if you're going to do a Toronto Maple Leaf, you're the announcer at uh, the, Air Can- the Air Canada Centre. No, Scotiabank's place, whatever it's called this week. And Austin, Austin Matthews scores. You know it's coming out. Just Toronto goal. And yes. The guy is going to go on. And tonight... Who are, they, who are they playing tonight? L.A. Kings. L.A. Kings. Austin Matthews, 14th goal of the season on number 31. That's Siv from L.A., Jamie Quick. See, you would never no, do but that. No, but you're going to get Austin Matthews bellowed out. Absolutely. And that, again, And I, you're going to get... That's no problem. LA, that's, that's no problem. L.A. goal scored by number eight. No Norway. problem. You can hardly hear it, right? No problem. Apologizing. But, okay, and again, let's well, say it's Anze Kopitar. Right, yeah. uh, and LA goal scored by number twenty-three, Anze Kopitar, who beats his children and you know whatever. I mean, like you, whatever. You're not ever, and he doesn't. By the way, that's you know, it's an well, example. A lot of people of, didn't know that. No, but there's, you're never going to say stuff like that against the opposing team. I don't think, and I think there's a good reason for that. I think it's totally fine to pump up your audience. I, I, I have less, I don't know, less tolerance of mocking the opponent and maybe I'm just getting sappy or soft in my old age but it just it seems to me that it's unnecessary and it's it's that's probably it, it. it diminishes from the professionalism or the sportsmanship or something let the team on the field beat the snot out of your opponent if they want right and and cheer them on and say how great they are and be exciting and everything else I if that were to happen at Maple Leaf Gardens that they were to start mocking 
every time. So imagine if they here's one. Imagine in Philadelphia what would have happened because Philly I mean, is a tough town anyway. Remember that time when Ty Domi went into the penalty box and the fan got going with him and crashed yeah. through the board in the penalty. Now imagine if it was you know a Toronto penalty to number. What was he, 28? 28, Ty Domi. Ty Domi, two minutes for being a giant cement-headed goofball. Domi probably would have gone up the stands and beat the guy. By the way, the Leafs just scored one nothing first minute of the game. The Leafs backup goalie will be in our league next year. He's an East Coast League good kid. Is he? Anyway, good for I, him it, to inter- be interesting, it's an interesting one because I had not heard in a long time, I had not heard an announcer taking on the other team as part of his shtick. And it created a Does he lot do it all the time? I have no idea. Because you're not there. I have you no were idea. there for Mac, right? Yeah, I have no idea. But it's um, it was just an interesting one. I've not heard anyone else do it, and I would not advise it, quite honestly. I, don't, I just don't think it's... I don't think it adds anything to the game. I think it just creates hard feelings. But you know what? I bet you that there's going to be more and more people. We're, places are always looking for ways to juice up the experience and make people get going and everything else. I wouldn't be surprised if more people started doing that. Be I don't a, think it's a good idea. I don't idea. think you're going to see it in Major League Baseball, NHL. Or professional sports, no. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. You know what yesterday was the three, third year anniversary of? 30, the what? Third year. Third year anniversary of what yesterday? No idea. Jose Bautista oh, and the, the bat, bat flip. flip. I did know that. Third year anniversary. Three years ago yesterday was the bat flip. It's amazing. It is truly amazing that in just three years, they've gone from that level of completely dominating the discussion. And I don't mean just sports fans. I mean dominating the discussion in southern Ontario, maybe across Canada, to being, is irrelevant too strong a word? I don't think it is. I think irrelevant is probably pretty close. Argos? Not as irrelevant as the Argos, not in Toronto, but you have you have a you have a Toronto Blue Jay team that in the span of three years has gone from being a loaded, stacked powerhouse that everybody talked about all the time, every day, to a team that nobody thinks is even gonna win seventy games next year. No, it's not like uh what was it three years ago? The Leafs said we're gonna be bad. Yeah, there's going gonna... to be pain. Oh, there's going to be pain with the Jays. But there was going to be an upside. They had a yeah. plan. Well, and there's going to be some upside with the Jays, I believe. They've got some good young players, but you're going to need more than just a couple of good young players that they have. And they've but, got. But Guerrero. Yeah, well, he's. But he was picked. Uh, Alex picked him. Yeah. These guys didn't even. A lot of the good guys, these guys have nothing to do with. Nope, but. But you know, as I was thinking about that, uh, as I was thinking about that bat flip yesterday, got me wondering what events. And I mean, we can restrict it to. Uh, we won't go back to the uh, 1967 George Armstrong empty net goal, which uh, I although, saw. Which okay, Black but w- within the last even 25 years, what events would rival? that bat flip for moments in Southern Ontario sports. Moments. Joe Carter. Joe Carter, for sure. The home run by Joe Carter, absolutely. Um, I'm trying to think what else. I mean, in if you go across Canada, Sidney Crosby's goal in the Olympics would be that, for sure. 
and I don't know that there's another thing in that because there are some just behind it. There was the Edwin Encarnacion walk-off over twenty. Let's say it was twenty-five years. Donovan Bailey gold medal. That yeah yeah. Now would would that have been? Would Donovan Bailey's gold medal? It's a good one. Would it have been? Um, would it have been as big a deal as Batista's home run? Different kind of thing. It was a national thing, and it was a huge thing. Well, I don't think Joey uh, Joey Bat's bat flip is in Joe Carter's conversation. Well, no, because that Joe Carter won the World Series. Yeah, I don't think it's in the same conversation. The only reason so that Bailey's uh, gold medal would be above the bat flip. The only reason that I question is in in isolation, Bautista's bat flip is just a home run. But you have to have put it together with everything that happened at the top of that seventh inning, and just how oh, wild yes. and no, how no. wild that that seventh inning. I mean, that seventh inning. If you and you can go online and watch the entire. They have the entire seventh inning from start to finish, and it's a forty-five minute inning. And it may be, honestly... It had it all. It may have been, even though Joe Carter's home run was clearly more impactful and important. Very dramatic. That 45 minutes may have been the most dramatic 45 minutes in Toronto sports history. It really might have. (laughs) If you're going to... Because it's not a moment. Carter's home run was a moment. Sidney Crosby's goal in the overtime may have been as dramatic uh, in Canadian sports history, or if you go back, Paul Henderson. But that 45 minutes was as up and down and emotional a roller coaster as anything that I can remember in recent years. Donovan Bailey was a moment. It was a 10-second... You can say it was 10 seconds. It was a 10-second moment. It's a really interesting one. I, I, and here's the other part that really stunned me yesterday as I started thinking about that. You had the... With the Blue Jays since 2015, so within the last three years, again, considering where they are now, to think they had the Bautista home run with the bat flip, the next year they had the Edwin Encarnacion walk-off against the Orioles in the wildcard game home run, then in the series after that they had the Donaldson dash that won the series against Texas when he came running around on the double play that Texas bobbled and he comes sliding in and they end up winning that one. And you think, think in the span of two years, they had three moments that are unbelievable. Some of the top moments in Blue Jay history, right? And it, absolutely. In, in such a short window, and now they're... Now, now there's, there's no hope for a long time of any of that stuff happening again. Well, I don't... I, I don't even what I don't understand to this day is how they got to where they are. I don't know why you get rid of Paul Beeston. I don't know why well, he Alex, retired. Well, they tried to retire him the year before. I think he retired once before that even. Well, he did. He went to Major League Baseball. But I mean, Paul Paul Beeston could have carried on. Alex was uh, a Canadian guy that was doing great things as general manager. Some people in Atlanta like him now. The thing with Anthopolis is, and it is easy to forget because everybody seems to hate Mark Shapiro and not really a big fan of Ross Atkins, Anthopolis had basically was heading out the door almost and went for it. He had all these trade chips, and he just, he went for it. And if Alex Anthopolis had stuck around after that year, it's not necessarily clear that he is going to be able to maintain that. Alex Anthopoulos to me, we only have a few seconds left. Alex, Alex Anthopoulos to me in baseball terms is like Elvis or Jim Morrison or Janis Joplin. 
or Princess Diana or Terry Fox, right? You stop them at the height of their power, the height of their popularity, and that's how you remember them. They never have a chance to fail or to do something that is going to make them you could fall make, out of the off the pedestal. Here's an argument I'd consider. A lot of the players he brought in have not performed well and have had since odd injuries. True. I'm True. not sure that you can't say you could view some of that as a protest to getting rid of a guy that brought Maybe. me here. The other funny thing, and we got to go to break. The other funny thing about Alex Anthopoulos is if you go back and look at the trades that he made that year in 2015 to bring in Price and to bring in uh, Tulowitzki and to bring in who Donaldson. else did he bring in? Latroy Hawkins as a closer, and to bring in Donaldson, and to bring in uh, who was the uh, the outfielder from uh, Philadelphia that he brought in, um, and whoever else he brought in. Look at all those guys that he brought in. There is not all those top prospects that he traded away. Not one of them is an impact player in Major League Baseball. So not what, one. So what did he give up? Perhaps he's a genius. He gave up basically, as it turns out, basically nothing. Basically nothing. Maybe he's a genius. Or the luckiest guy alive. But this is, this is the thing about prospects, always. Yes. The prospect is not a sure thing. You are giving up hope and you're giving up what may be, but there's no guarantee they're going to be anything. Sam Pollock said, the guy that gets the best player wins the trade. Still, still stands. Seems to. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. 